All right, let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter number 1. We'll be looking here at these first 18 verses. I love this passage of Scripture. I particularly like it around Mother's Day. Uh, though the message today is not at all a Mother's Day message, but certainly Hannah is a tremendous, uh, a, a tremendous lady to look at in regards to uh, motherhood and the sacrifices of motherhood uh, and the things that, that she did in, uh, in the life of Samuel and how God used her. Uh, today we're going to focus more on her. Uh, on her uh, burden in particular. So we begin here in 1 Samuel chapter number one, chapter number one and verse number one. And we'll read down through verse number 18. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. And the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And when the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina his wife and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up uh, to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh, and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by a post in the temple of the Lord. And she vowed, and she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And it came to pass, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah, she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought that she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. I want to speak this morning on the thought, a burden and its prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the opportunity that we have to open your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would make plain in our hearts and our minds, the truth of this passage. Lord, I pray that you would help us to 
accept it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to respond as you lead us and prompt us. And Lord, I pray that you would put in our heart uh, an understanding of what it is like truly to be burdened and how that invokes prayer in our life and how life-changing that can be. Lord, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look here at this woman, Hannah, Hannah is a woman who clearly has a problem. Uh, we, we can relate to that, the, the concept or the notion of, hey, I've got a problem. You know, problems are part of life. It's something that all of us experience on one level or another and one way or another. Uh, and there's something that we all have to learn to deal with. In Hannah's life, her problem is personal. Her problem is cultural. Uh, and, uh, you know, her problem is something that is, is here for the long term. It's not a problem that has arisen that is going to easily go away. In fact, the longer that time has gone on, the more burdensome, the more difficult, and the heavier her burden, her problem has become. And so uh, Hannah here has this problem. She's without child. Now, that me meant a lot more in their time and culture than it does today. If you were to uh, find young couples today that are wanting, desiring to have children that have had trouble or cannot conceive, certainly that's burdensome to them. But uh, there, there are, uh, there's no cultural ramifications in the fact that they're not viewed as uh, less of a person or they're not viewed as being out of the favor of God or they're not viewed of not having uh, God's blessing on their life. But in this time, that's exactly what was associated with it. A woman's value, her, her uh, walk with God was validated. Her, the favor of God on her life was validated uh, by whether or not she had children and whether or not in particular she had male children. Uh, and so, you know, that was what they dealt with in their culturally at their time. So this was something that was a, a, a it's, it's a, I'm not saying it's not a big deal now for someone that desires a child and is struggling. I'm saying that in their culture, it was everything. That her entire identity, her entire existence, her entire value, her, her self-esteem, everything about her was wrapped up in the fact that she had been married for at least a considerable amount of time and had no children. And she desired them. So that's her problem. And her problem at first was something that would have come to mind, something that would have grown to a concern, something that then would have been so overwhelming and perplexing that it robbed her of her very sleep. When we talk about burdens, burdens come in a variety of shapes and sizes. A burden is something that uh, can be a, a catalyst to something positive in our life. Uh, it generally, when God is working, becomes that if we respond to it correctly. Uh, but a, a burden can be something as, uh, as, uh, as along the lines of a medical problem. It can be a financial problem. It can be deep concern for a loved one or for uh, a church or for the, the salvation of lost souls. There are a lot of different ways that a burden can manifest itself in, the in, in our lives. And I think it's important this morning that we gain an understanding, though we clearly see what her burden is, that the application to us and any burden that we would bear is, is there. And so when we consider this, we have to start with thinking, well, what is a, what is a burden truly? 
In a biblical context, when we say, I have a burden, what are we saying? And what is it? Because we have a tendency in, in our modern lives to uh, kind of, our language is much more shallow than their language in the language that the Bible was originally written in. And so a lot of times we misunderstand uh, or we don't get full understanding or meaning. A burden uh, was not something that was, uh, that came and went. A burden biblically was something that bore down on you. I, it was something that she couldn't get rid of. Uh, she is loved. That's not the problem here. It's not that her husband doesn't love her. He honors her above the others. He and it, you know, and that's something else that's hard for us to understand and and to put into context because it's so. Uh, you know, it, it's against what the Bible gives us in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. It was never God's plan for there to be anything other than one man and one woman for life. That's the plan of God. Uh, and so that context of multiple wives is a difficult thing for us to kind of navigate our emotional, get a, get a, a mind, wrap, get our minds wrapped around. But here she is. Uh, and in their way and in what was acceptable in their culture, she's loved. She's cared for. Uh, her husband is aware of her deep broken heart. He is mindful. He comes to her and tries to comfort her. He, he lavishes her with gifts. But she has a problem. Though she's loved, she's incomplete. There's, there's something that's lacking and missing in her life. Something that she deeply longs for. And she's not willing to settle for less than the blessing and the power of God in her life. And you have to understand, this is what, for her to have a child exemplifies, is that I have God's favor. So her real burden here is, God, I need your favor. I long for your favor. I long for your presence and acceptance and power in my life. She's shamed. Because of her barrenness, Penina constantly shames her. It's not enough that she feels that she's without value of her own accord. It's not enough that she feels empty and rejected by God. It's, it's not enough that she's carrying this around in her heart and in her mind. Whenever there could be a moment's rest, there's always Penina there to rub in and to show up, I have children and you don't. I have God's favor and you don't. He, if he loves you more now than he loves me, speaking of their husband, it's only a matter of time before the fact that these children bring him around to me and take him from you. All of these kinds of things and attitudes that we've seen exemplified in relationships like this in earlier in the Old Testament, we can imagine her th thoughts that are going through her mind. She's, she's shamed. She's walking around with this cloud of shame over her with an adversary that will not let her forget it. Constantly ridiculed, constantly mocked. This was not a condition that would only last for a moment. This was a problem that had existed for years. Her problem truly had become a burden. So what are we talking about here when we speak of a genuine burden? To be burdened is to be loaded with a weight, to be encumbered, or to be oppressed. 
When you talk about the, the classic illustration of a burden would be a pack mule. A pack mule in the old days would be loaded with all that was necessary for the journey ahead. If the journey, no matter how short, no matter how long, it was, it was the, up to the maximum amount that that animal could bear was laden upon it to get that person from point A to point B. If they were going out for weeks, if they were going out for months, if they were going across country, if they were whatever they were doing, they took the weight of all that was necessary and they put it on that animal. Here's where uh, that kind of relates to a burden upon us. A mule's burden affected its every step. It never moved a leg that it didn't feel the weight of the burden. Every shift of the terrain caused it to feel a shift of the burden. There was no escape. Until the burden was lifted, he felt the weight of everything that was laden upon it. You know, a lot of times we have cares, we have problems, and they pop into our mind when we have to deal with them and then we set them aside and we come back to them later. A lot of times something will settle in over us, maybe that's a little heavier. And we still can find some respite maybe in an activity or in a conversation with a loved one. We can find some peace. We can find some joy. We can forget about the anxiety of that moment. We can get away from it uh, in most cases, but not with a burden. A burden never ceases to be there. A genuine burden, uh, a biblical burden in this context is there in your sleep. It's there at every waking moment of the day. It's in the forethought of your mind with every task that you perform. When you need to set it aside so that you can turn your attention to something that has to be done, it's hard to concentrate because it won't leave you alone. When we talk about a burden, and we talk about this burden that she has, her, her barrenness is no longer just a concern. She has every reason to wonder, will I ever have the favor of God in my life, as she perceived it. It, 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 it was not an occasional unpleasant thought to her. It was not something that temporarily affected her from year to year when she came to the tabernacle. It was a burden. It dominated her thoughts. It kept her from sleep. It affected her every relationship. It produced a change in her walk with God. And ultimately, as unpleasant and as uncomfortable as a burden can be, the one positive is that a burden presents us with an opportunity for our walk with God to be changed and to grow deep. When we look and we consider Hannah's affliction, it's important to note that Hannah did not choose her burden. God chose her burden. I think that it is a commendable thing for God's people to ask God to give them a burden for souls or a burden for their church or a burden for an individual or a burden for a missionary or a burden for a particular country. I think that's a commendable thing, but understand when we ask for that, what we're asking for. We're asking for something that is going to crush us. 
We're asking for something that is going to leave us flat on our face before the altar of God. We're asking for something that's going to change and affect every avenue of our life, every relationship in our life. And when she came to this place, when she came to this place of worship and this annual sacrifice, her worship was different. There was something different when she was burdened. Her prayer became more urgent. She fasted, she wept, and she poured out her spirit before God. Now I want you to note this morning that this was taking place in a time in Israel that was spiritually dark. Their spiritual leaders were corrupt. We're at the end of the book of Judges. We are at the culmination of about 400 years of sin cycling itself over and over to oppression and to slavery and to then repentance and then deliverance and then it just viciously repeated itself. We're at the end of that cycle in Israel's history. And in the midst of all of this, the very people that they need to be able to turn to for spiritual guidance and enlightenment are as corrupt as they could be. Eli has no clue as to the spiritual well-being of what's going on around him as Israel's high priest. His own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are desecrating the tabernacle. They're stealing the sacrifice. They're fornicating in the gate. They're abusing God's people as they come to worship. They're taking advantage at every turn. This is the environment that Hannah comes to when she comes to worship. And in spite of that, God meets with her. When God is in control and when we allow God to be in control, God is able, I'm not condoning uh, misconduct in the pulpit. I am saying that God is capable of speaking to someone who is searching for truth regardless. When there's corruption, should action be taken? Absolutely. But, but corruption is no excuse for my sin. I'll never be justified in my own sin because of someone else's sin. And understand what's taking place here. Eli is so out of touch that when God comes and speaks to this woman and he sees her pouring her heart out to God in prayer, he thinks that she's drunk. She says, don't think me a dishonest liar. I'm not here making light of worship. I am pouring my heart out to God. And he doesn't figure it out. Because when Samuel is born and Samuel is there and God comes and speaks to Samuel when he's still a small boy, he has to come the third time before Eli realizes that it's God that's speaking to him. He refuses to rein in his corrupt sons, the priests that offer the sacrifice. He doesn't stop them from removing the Ark of the Covenant and taking it to battle to be captured by the Philistines. He dies when he hears of their death because he's so... Uh, he, he is so uh, obese and out of touch with everything in life and what his responsibilities are that he falls backward and breaks his neck. He is a man who is vile and corrupt, but yet he is the high priest of Israel. And when he comes and offers prayer, when he speaks to her, she hears what he says. And in spite of all of that, God uses him to inspire her. Again, 
it's kind of hard for us to reconcile how God could work in the midst of such a corrupt environment, but clearly he did. God's will will be done. Prayer must be prominent. Leonard Ravenhill said prayer not only changes things, prayer changes people. And when we become burdened for someone, when we become burdened for something, when we become burdened about something, that burden will drive us to prayer. And that prayer not only has the potential to change the outcome of our burden, but it will change us. When we consider this young woman and what she's doing, we find her in distress. We find her pouring her heart out to God. We find her longing to change or to have God change the outcome. I wonder this morning how long it's been since we have been burdened for a lost soul. How long has it been since we've been burdened to see God move in our midst? How long has it been since we've been burdened to see God move in our nation? How long has it been? Now listen, I'm not standing here saying that I'm guiltless here. I'm saying this morning that it was as just the normal rhythms of life and the day and age in which we live and how much easier things are for us uh, than they were for people at this day and age. That in many ways, uh, we have grown complacent and we take for granted the power of God and the blessing of God and the promises of God. And we don't feel a need to be burdened because we just think God's going to show up at some point. Would we be burdened? It's been asked, are we so little in faith, so callous toward God, so unconcerned of eternity that we can no longer be burdened? Would we be burdened to see God move? Hannah was burdened to see God move. She would not accept that God was not granting her his favor. She would not accept that she could not sense his presence in her life. Three things that we see about Hannah's prayer this morning that I think uh, are noteworthy and worthy of our attention and application into our lives. Number one, we see this morning in verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life and there shall no razor come upon his head. I will give him, I will give him a Nazarite. There are special commitments and promises in that Nazarite vow. I will, if you God will look at me, the one who has not found your favor, the one who is unworthy and you'll remember me. I'll give him to you forever. Her prayer was very specific. Her prayer was very powerful. Her prayer was longing to see God move because it was a prayer of necessity. She couldn't do anything at this point but pray. There was nothing left to try. There was not one more doctor left to visit. There was not one more home remedy left to take. There was not anything else, humanly speaking, that could be done. If there was going to be the presence of God, if there was going to be the power of God, if there was going to be the moving of God, 
if there was going to be a prominence of God in her life, the only way that it could come to pass was through prayer. Amen. Prayer is necessary. And this prayer of necessity we've seen before. We saw it in Rachel when she was barren, when she was mocked, when she was destitute. In Genesis chapter 30 and verse number one, when she came to Jacob and she said, give me children or else I die. The weight of the burden was so heavy that she was crying out, I don't even desire to live without God's favor in my life. When we look and we consider Rachel cries out to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Secondly, this prayer of necessity shows us that she had a need to be heard by someone who understood. Clearly, Penina didn't care. Clearly, Eli was clueless. Clearly, Hophni and Phinehas were busy desecrating the tabernacle. Clearly, her husband, though he was concerned, did not understand. She needed someone who understood. She needed someone who could feel what she felt. She needed the one she was worshiping. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 17 and 18 tell us, Wherefore in all things it behooved him, Jesus, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Remember, she's before Eli. In all things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. She went to the one who could comfort her. She went to the one who could understand. Chapter 4 of Hebrews in verse 15 finds us reading, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, and yet without sin. Hannah's prayer of necessity made her desperate. Her prayer of necessity made her realize she needed to be heard by someone who understood. And thirdly, we see that Hannah's prayer of necessity needed to be heard by someone who could solve the problem. Our problem a lot of times is, is that we, we feel so overwhelmed and burdened and we tell our problems to everyone but the one that can solve it. We go to everyone and we, uh, we try to rationalize and we try to reason and we try to find resources to to alleviate our dilemma, but the one that can solve the problem is longing to hear from us. We look again in Hebrews chapter 4, telling us that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hannah's prayer of necessity 
causes her to desperately cry out to God. A need to be heard by someone that understands and a need to be heard by someone who can solve her problem. What I'm saying this morning is that we must come to the realization that God alone is able to lift the burden. He is our burden bearer. He is the one that cares for our soul. Not only was her prayer a prayer of necessity, but secondly, we see that her prayer was a prayer of nakedness. She has been stripped of everything. Every aspect of her self-worth, every avenue of her life was laid bare before God as she prayed. I would say three thoughts about this prayer of nakedness. Number one, that she was stripped of all of her pride. There was no pride left within her. We see David in a similar state in Psalm 139 and verses 23 and 24 when he says, Search me, O God, and try my reins, my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And he closes it by saying, Lead me in the way everlasting. We look and we consider that she's been stripped of all her pride and we are a proud people. We by nature are swollen and overwhelmed by pride. We culturally are programmed to be a proud people. We relabel it. We call it different things. We call it self-esteem. We call it dignity. We call it self-worth. We call it value. But when you boil it all away, what it really is is pride. She has no pride left. She has no dignity left. She's not, she has, she, there's no more shame that can be put upon her. She has no hesitation to prostrate herself at the gate of the tabernacle and to weep and shame herself. She didn't care what anyone thought. She didn't care what anyone else did. She wasn't really mindful of who else was stirring about. She had no pride left. A prayer of nakedness. And I'm saying this morning that we never really can come boldly before the presence of God until our pride has been stripped away. Until we see ourselves as we are. A loved, forgiven, but yet unworthy sinner that needs an almighty God to intervene and to work in my life. Not only was she stripped of all her pride, but she stripped of all of her carnal ambition. There's no self-glory sought for here. You have to understand, you say, Pastor, but she wanted a child. Yes, because the child was the symbol of God's favor. She longed for God's favor. She longed for God's approval. She longed for God's blessing. She's not seeking self-glory. She's seeking validation that God loves me, that God's working in me, that God's living for, wants to use my life for him. She's been stripped of carnal ambition. She's not coming to God and bartering a deal and saying, God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll serve you forever. She's saying, if you'll do this, it's yours. What I'm asking you to give me, I really want so that I can give it to you. It's not about her being pleased. It's about her being able to worship and honor God. 
she offers that man-child, if God would give it, to her God. She honors that. You stop and you think about her walk with God after this. To go all these years to deal with all that mockery, to have God finally answer your prayer and give you that child, to wean that child and then take that child and put it in the hands and in the care of such corruption. Because that's what you promised God you would do. No reasonable person would look at her and say that she evaluated the situation and though she had promised that to God, that the, the corruption of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas had been so great that she just couldn't put them in their care, that God would understand. She put them where she promised God and she trusted God to make up the difference. God moves in a great way because she had laid aside her carnal ambition and she was stripped of all of her self-reliance. Now I'm probably would consider myself to be about the world's worst in the issue of the matter of self-reliance. It's not that I think that I have a great amount of talent, but I'm, <coughs> I, I really don't like to be a bother to somebody. I, I would find things that need to be done and the first thing in my reaction is, what am I going to do to solve this problem? What am I going to do to fix this? It could be something that I don't know anything about and I'm still thinking in my mind, how am I going to fix this? I don't want to call anybody. I don't want to bother anybody. There's got to be something that I can read. There's got to be something that I can watch. There's got to be some way that I can learn to solve this problem. I have often been taught in life that there are a lot of problems that, that just isn't the way that it is. I end up having to call somebody. But you can pretty much rest assured that before I make a phone call, I'm going to try to figure it out. And if I can't figure it out, I'm going to try to find somebody that I can pay. And if I can't pay, then, I'm going to, then I'll go to someone that could be a blessing. That's the way that most of us operate. And it's exactly backwards from the way that we should operate. She comes to a place where she's saying to God, I have no self-reliance. True a true burden brings us to a point where we realize that we're insufficient, that there's nothing that we can do. I'm not saying that we don't have other things in our life that reach the level of a problem. I'm saying this morning that a genuine burden strips us of all of our pride. It strips us of all of our carnal ambition and it strips us of all of our self-reliance. Any notion, any thought, any inkling that we could solve this on our own. That we are the solution to the problem. It's all gone. And for Hannah, as she lays there praying and pouring her heart out to God, she's fully aware of the fact that she can do nothing. We must come to the realization, as she did, that a price had to be paid for that burden to be lifted. It cost her Samuel. She had to take that child and wean him. And this is hard for us to understand in Western culture. If you get into Latin American culture and Eastern culture, it's a little easier for people there to understand. But weaning a child meant that Samuel was probably seven, eight, nine years of age. That's beyond our thinking in a Western culture. A, a nursing child generally is weaned around one. In other parts of the world, it's still commonplace for a child that's 
six or seven years old to be nursing. Samuel was taken as a young boy, probably between six to nine years of age. Imagine his heartbreak, being torn away from his mother. Imagine her leaving him in the care of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas and walking away and going about her business. Coming once a year and bringing him a, a coat and, and, and loving him and catching up with him and, uh, and bringing him the family news. But she honored and paid the price of God's lifting of her burden. A prayer of nakedness, prayer of necessity. And we see that her prayer was also a prayer of navigation. I choose that term because life really is a vast ocean. We can't see the other side. We don't know what lies before us. We at least have the benefit, if you're someone that's sailing today, of GPS and all of the knowledge that we have uh, and satellite imagery of what's out there. But there was a time in the 1400s where that wasn't the case. Where people boarded a sailing vessel. I've, I've been on a, a, a replica of the Mayflower. It's not any longer from tip to tail than this platform is. Not any wider either. To set out across the Atlantic. Columbus to set out not knowing what lay before. That's really the Christian life. We set out, we know what God's promises are, but we don't know what we're going to encounter along the way. Hannah's prayer is a prayer of navigation. She's saying to God, God, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I trust you with it. We see three thoughts about this. First, I would say in terms of our futures, that only Jesus knows how to get where I, need, where I desire to go. Assuming that my desire is to do the will of God, only Jesus knows how to get me there. And in Hannah's case, as she pours out her heart, only God can solve her problem. Only God can handle her issue. Only God can make the difference. Will we come to a place in our life of prayer where we seek for God to burden us about the things that are his will, realizing that only God knows how to lead us through? That secondly, that only Jesus has a vessel that can handle the storm. Life is filled with storms. Life is fraught with danger. There's all kinds of peril. Some is physical. Some is spiritual. Some is mental or emotional. But there are all kinds of battles that lie before us. All kinds of storms that lie before us. What I'm saying this morning is that only Jesus has the vessel that can handle the storm. He knows the storms that we'll face. He knows what we have to go through. He knows what we need to go through. Thirdly, I would say that only Jesus sees us through to the other side. We don't have the ability to make it through the storm. We don't have the ability to survive the waves and the wind. But he does. In verse 18 and in verse 19, we see this burden lifted. In verse 18, he says, and she said, Let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. 
So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. And they rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Understand that Hannah has come to a place now where she is laying here, pouring out her heart before God, and God communes with her and meets with her and confirms in her heart that he is going to answer her prayer based on the word of a corrupt high priest. It's amazing what God will use to confirm his word to us whenever we're paying attention. And immediately the burden is lifted. Her broken heart turns to joy. She stands up in faith. She stands up in promise. She stands up in blessing and power, experiencing and feeling for the first time in her life, perhaps, the, the favor of God upon her. The glory of God shining on her. The, the feeling and the sense in her soul that God is going to do something great within her. And she doesn't get up and mope around until she finds out that she's pregnant and God's answered her prayer. She gets up immediately and she eats. She gets up immediately and she rejoices. She gets up and immediately and the burden is lifted. And then she worships God and she goes about her business in faith, believing that God would do what he promised to do. Not a life that's distraught, not a life that's destroyed, but a life that is blessed even before her burden had been delivered. Just a few thoughts as we close this morning. We, none of us, enjoy that kind of pressure, the pressure of that kind of a burden. But the world desperately needs for God's people to be burdened. Churches desperately need for its members to be burdened. A nation desperately needs for the Christian element, the remnant within it, to be burdened. Would we seek a burden from God so that we would be driven to a prayer of necessity, to a prayer that strips us of everything that hinders our prayer life? to a prayer that would give us guidance to make a difference. It's been said that we need to care enough to have a burden. We need to be burdened enough to turn to God. And we need to turn to God or all is in vain. Until God shows up, we're just going through the motions. He wants a burden to bring us to prayer. W.E. Biderwolf, many years ago, said this about Hannah's prayer. If Hannah's prayer for a son had been answered in the time that she set forth, the nation of Israel might never have known the mighty man of God that was Samuel. Samuel, the last judge. Samuel, the great prophet. Samuel, the one that God used to give us a man that's described as being after God's own heart. The one that anointed him. 
the one that followed God to him. The one that set him on that path. Samuel's presence, Samuel's power with God, Samuel's leadership of a nation. All because a young woman had a burden and prayed. Would we seek God's burden and would we pray?